Our passage this morning is 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 36. If you want to use a Bible there in the seats, that's page 226. We are continuing in our series in 1 Samuel, waiting and expecting the king that God will produce in the midst of injustice and poor leadership. God has been gracious to give Hannah and her husband Elkanah a son and Samuel who they gave to the temple in service to the Lord. And so we continue with the story this morning. Let's give our attention to God's holy word. 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 36. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast. For he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. His mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked for the Lord. Then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil doings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar? to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of God. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I command for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. 
so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do, what, do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall go in and out before my anointed for every, ever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, Please, put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. One of the things that happens when we go to the books of history, like First and Second Samuel and other portions of Scripture, is that the stories are often much longer than uh, the miracles of Jesus or aspects of Jesus' teaching or the letters of Paul. And often there are themes that run throughout it. And so I just want to say that because in order to have coherent passages uh, to deal with the themes in them, that there are large portions. That means that sometimes uh, I won't address every detail in the passage, uh, but to focus on the main themes and the main messages. But just because I don't speak to it doesn't mean it's uh, not important, for all of God's Word is valuable. So if you have questions or thoughts about specific passages and verses throughout uh, today's sermon and coming sermons, please don't hesitate to ask. Uh, we seek here at Christ Church and churches like ours to have expository preaching. And expository preaching means to bring out what God's Word says. And sometimes that happens by verse-by-verse verse preaching, especially with, with Paul's letters. And sometimes in larger passages, we, we miss the message if we get uh, too zoomed in on certain details. Uh, but regardless of whether large passages or short passages, whether verse by verse or preaching the text as a whole, what we want is for God's message for his people to come forward. That's my prayer for this morning and every morning when we gather around God's word. Let's pray that God would show us his message for his people this morning. Gracious God, we come to your word. Thank you that we can hear it. Thank you for your preservation of what you have spoken through your people, what you have done among your people, so that we who are your people now might know you and serve you and worship you. Lord, would you encourage us and correct us, help us to walk in a way that is pleasing to you through the proclamation of your word. Help me to speak that which is for your people this morning. Would that which I introduce that is not of you, would it be quickly forgotten or set aside? Use this time by your spirit. For your glory, we pray. Amen. So as you know, when it's not so cold and you're hiking in the woods in New Hampshire, that time upon time, you will often come across a stone wall. And if you're from New Hampshire, you understand that people didn't go around building stone walls in the forest. But the walls are remnants from a bygone day that where we find these stone walls, they used to be farms. They used to be pasture land. They used to be cleared of trees. 
Around the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, New Hampshire had lost more than half of its forests. Now we've come back to be the second most forested state in our nation. But when we see those walls, it speaks of a, a different time. New England was a farmland for many who worked hard to clear the forests, to till the soil, to break up the rocky soil, to pick the stones up out of the fields, to build those walls. But farming in New Hampshire is not easy. It's forest land. It's rocky soil. And so as land to the west began to open up, over time many farmers chose to move on to leave their pastures, to leave their tilled fields to new lands. And slowly the forest came back, and thus the walls amongst the forest. I don't blame those hard-working men and women who chose to find better country, to find better farmland. But I'm glad this is not the Lord's approach. We are rocky soil. We are hard. We are prone to grow up weeds. But God in his faithfulness is willing to till the soil, to maintain the land, to prune, to weed in order to produce fruit. Our passage this morning is a passage about God's faithfulness. His faithfulness to his covenant people to do what is necessary to root out that which is deadly, that which is hindering to their well-being, to replace it with what is fruitful and for their benefit. Last week, we looked at Hannah's song of praise. Her prayer of thanksgiving to a sovereign God who rules in power. And as she sang and prayed, she celebrated God's power. His ability to reverse misfortune for the poor and the hungry and the barren. She celebrated his holiness, that there was no other hope but him. The promise that he would one day provide a king in which they could trust, a a king that would rule in his behalf. This morning's passage is the flip side. Whereas Hannah was responding in song to God's graciousness, his generosity, his compassion through the gift of Samuel, as she celebrated her own reversal of misfortune, so as she spoke of those who were prideful and arrogant and boastful being brought down, we see the truthfulness in this passage. It is a pruning process where God is seeking to produce fruit among his people. And so he starts at the heart of the people, the priesthood. This morning, as God is faithful to produce fruit among his people, we need to recognize that holiness, the fruit that God is after, starts at home. God's intent for his people was expressed clearly through the prophet Moses As God's people left Egypt on the exodus, on the way to the promised land, God spoke these words through Moses in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God's intent for Israel was that they would be a holy nation, distinct and set apart, but not to be withdrawn. They were to be a priestly nation. 
that in them other nations would see a superior God, would see the goodness of commandments, and would see in Israel the opportunity to enter into the presence and knowledge of such a God. The purpose of Israel is a continuation of the purpose for all of us. God made us, Adam and Eve, and all of their descendants in his own image. Why? To glorify him. To bear his image, to multiply and have dominion. So that we could say, look, we're in charge. No, so that we could communicate the splendor and beauty and wonder of the God who reigns. God has made mankind and God made Israel with a priestly purpose. But Israel could not well be a priestly nation if the priesthood itself was corrupt. And the book of Judges, which serves as the backdrop to 1 Samuel, shows us how corrupt God's people have become. Corrupt in their worship, corrupt in their beliefs, corrupt through violence and all manners of misdeed. The fruit is bad. And so what do you do when the fruit is bad? You go back to the source. You don't just say, well, that's a bad apple. I'm just going to nip right behind that bad apple. You go back to find the source. Maybe it's that particular branch. Maybe you have to go all the way back to the tree and cut it off. Maybe if there is bad fruit spread throughout the tree, you need to go to the roots and see what is feeding the system to corrupt the fruit so poorly. And our passage this morning shows the focus of God to eradicate the corrupting source in the priesthood. And as we read the passage, we see that the corruption runs deep. Let's examine that for a moment. Verse 12 starts out describing Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And it says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. The the Hebrew there is sons of Belial. Which, this is the language that Hannah herself used when, when she went and she was praying and Eli thought she was drunk. She said, Don't think of me as a daughter of Belial. Don't think of me as a worthless woman. She's worried about the judgment of Eli upon her, while meanwhile, this is how God describes Eli's sons. Sons of Belial, worthless men. Verse 13 describes the corruption of their practices. Why they are described as worthless. People are bringing their offerings and and they're preparing their fellowship meals after they've made their offerings. And so they come in with these little forks to take a portion for themselves. Now, on the outset, it's not a horrendous practice, but this is not how the priests and the servants of the temple are to receive their gifts. God has already laid it out for them in Leviticus chapter 10 and Numbers 18 that they receive their portions after the offering is made, and usually it's a roast portion. So already they're not following, kind of, if you will, the the nitty-gritty bits of the law. But but then it gets worse. Not only are they they trying to get their portion in this um, unregulated fashion, they then come up to people in verse 15 and say, Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me meat to roast. I will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And for, for us who, who don't enjoy spending a lot of time in Leviticus and Numbers because they're, they're more difficult, because there are, are bits of information that we need more context for, we may miss the fact that, that this is a horrendous thing. For, for God's people, we're not supposed to eat the fat, period, because the fat was supposed to be offered to God. 
It was the choicest portion was to be burned up in offering. And so there's, there's two things that are happening. A, the priests are taking for themselves what is meant for God. And then by taking it, they are preventing God's people from offering appropriate and right worship. Here the priests who should be upholding the law, upholding the priestly system, have to have the people say, say no. This isn't right. Let, let us do it the right way. And then they threatened violence. They said, no, give it to us or we will take it by force. They've gone from selfishness to taking for themselves to what is from the Lord. And so we find it not so surprising that the threats of violence then lead to coercive sexual practices. Treating the women who were there at the tabernacle to serve and help as if they were common temple prostitutes instead of servants of the Lord. We see impure worship, violent theft, stealing from the Lord, and abuse of the women serving the Lord. These are the assistant priests. These are the sons of the high priest. So God will start at the source. He will cut off the priestly line that is corrupting the worship of God's people and leading them astray. God doesn't just send a prophet out to the people and say, hey, you're you're not giving good enough sacrifices. Hey, you're not worshiping me as you should. Hey, you are falling into syncretism. Not because that doesn't matter to the Lord, but God recognizes that the priesthood is the reason for the corruption. And how can he expect his people to offer him real and true worship if the priesthood is corrupt? And so God sends a prophet, and we hear the prophecy in verses 27 through 36, and the prophet comes and announces that God is going to cut off Eli's line. His household will dwindle, and it will be eventually cut off. We read of that later in 1 Kings chapter 2, where Eli's household is finally replaced by the line of Zadok. Just to be sure that Eli knows that this will happen, because he is older, we read that in verse 22, Eli was very old, and this is all supposed to happen later, after he's passed away. But the prophet says, there's going to be a sign to you. If you doubt it, If God's patience with you, his lack of overt rebuke, his lack of punishment to you so far causes you to doubt that this will happen, he says he will receive a sign that Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons, will die on the same day. We need to remember that prophecy in the coming weeks as we move ahead in 1 Samuel. What we're reading is the fulfillment of Hannah's song. That the arrogant, that the full that the seemingly strong find their fortunes reversed. He will bring down, he will empty, he will break their strength. Why? Because God's concern is for his people. Holiness starts at home. How can God's people be a priestly nation? How can they represent God if the priests themselves do not know him and do not help God's people worship him aright? How can they be a holy nation with an unholy priesthood? So this calls us to examine ourselves as God's people, meant to be a holy people, serving the Lord. We we can apply this, for those of us that are parents in our parenting, to consider that 
we, in considering what is unrighteous and unholy around us, to say we must first and foremost start with ourselves and our own households. We see the influence of Eli, who seems to have been ignoring the reports for a long time of what's been happening in the lives of Hophni and Phinehas. And notice that the reports are coming to him. That he's not engaged in what's happening in his sons. That he has not been paying attention. But other people have to come and tell him what his sons are doing. We can contrast that with Hannah and Elkanah, who are faithful in coming and worshiping, who are coming and making offerings year after year. And through that faithfulness, by God's grace, they have a son, Samuel, who is depicted as faithfully ministering and serving, young though he is, in contrast to Hophni and Phinehas. It's a call to the church. Sometimes we ask from time to time what the greatest threat to the church is. And we look outside and we see particular economic systems, political policies and laws that are enacted in our nation, things that fail to support the life of the unborn and the aged. We see changing social mores and sexual practices. And these things are all real and these things are all evil and these things are are all corrupting. But as one pastor, David Cassidy, reminds us, the biggest threat to the church is Jesus. The biggest threat to the church is Jesus because he is passionate for our purity and holiness. And if we abandon serving him and serving him in the way that he has called us to, he will deal with us accordingly. In Revelation 2, 4 through 5, in one example in the, in the letters to the churches, Jesus says this, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Or consider Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11 where he's, a, he's addressing sexual immorality. And, and we know that Paul has already written to them and talked to them about this. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Paul says, we expect the world to be sinful. We expect the world to be evil. We expect the world to not uphold the righteous standard of God. Before we go into the world decrying or disassociating, we must deal with ourselves to look at the sin in our own lives in our own household, in our own churches, in our own denominations, if we are going to be who God has called us to be. A holy nation, a priesthood for his sake. God has committed to the mission of his people to be holy and set apart, to be this holy nation, that we might bring the, to the people to the Lord in worship. And so if we are to pay attention to holiness at home, with ourselves, with our families, with our churches, we must remember that the passage also shows us that worship is the fruit of the heart. There's not just external practices that God is concerned with, but God is concerned with the heart, which demonstrates itself in the way that we worship. Hophni and Phinehas do not care about the right worship of God, 
but they use worship for their own ends. The passage is very clear as to why this is. They did not know the Lord. Now, they certainly knew things about him. They were priests. They were raised within the law. But the language there is they did not revere him. They did not honor him. They did not consider him. It's as if they know things about God, but they live as if God does not truly exist. And so their worship reflects them. It's just a series of practices to get what they want. And not knowing the Lord, it seems that they think that God is not very generous, that God doesn't give enough, that if God was really good, he would allow them to have what they want, when they want it, and how they want it. So instead, they choose to think of God's tent, his ceremonies, his people as theirs to use for their own ends in whatever way they see fit. Their lack of reverence for God produces bad fruit, poor worship, because they worship their stomachs. They worship their authority and power. They worship their lusts. Now, this is the obvious example in our passage. But let's look at Eli. Eli is a mixed figure. I'm thankful that the reality of Scripture and the truthfulness of Scripture does not present these shiny, happy, perfect people and then these evil uh, bad guys with their mustaches and their black hats. No, Scripture describes real people. And Eli is one of those very real figures. Because Eli seems to uh, care. We see him ministering to Hannah. We see him here proclaiming the blessing upon Elkanah and Hannah that they would have future children. But we also get other hints about his character. As I said earlier, it seems like he has not stepped in early enough with his children. He's depended on other people to bring reports. And it's late in his life that he begins to rebuke Hophni and Phinehas. Verse 29 gives us other important insight. It says this, as the prophet speaks to Eli on behalf of the Lord, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Did you notice that Eli was included in there? Fattening yourselves? We notice that in chapter 4, which we'll read in a few weeks, that Eli is described as heavy, as exceedingly large. And so it would seem that the practice of, of Hophni and Phinehas, even if Eli is not overtly participating in it, he is allowing himself the benefits of their sinfulness. But that verse also says something else. He gets to the heart of it. You scorn my sacrifices and my offerings. You do not promote right worship that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me. In those words, we see the reality of worship. That we worship, that we obey, that we serve according to what we think is important. Jesus tells us that we cannot serve two masters, and he gives the example of, of money. And why can't we serve two masters? Because we end up 
scorning one in order to serve the other. And so here it is with Eli. Though in many areas of his life, he may say that he honors God. He may want to obey. He may want to do the right thing. Here, he scorns God's worship. He scorns the offerings because he honors his sons above the Lord. Are his sons bad? Are we called not to care for our children or care for our aged parents or care about our work or care about our finances? No. But all those things are of the Lord and need to be placed in right relationship to God. God being first and foremost in our lives. So our manner of worship can be corrupted to be about us instead of God if we place anything else in front of God. The frequency of our worship by the things that we value, our our money, our time, our work, our entertainment, can cause us to worship God less. Our manner of worship can become to be shaped about us. Or the the songs that we sing, or the times that we meet, or the things that we say in worship, the way that we worship in order to reverence God, or in order to make us feel good, or to meet our convenience, or to be attractional rather than reverent. If we are to be a fruitful people ministering to God, then other people might know God, then our hearts must know Him and worship Him first. And to honor Him means we need to know who He is. Throughout this passage, we have the descriptions of the practice of Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and his response to them and the prophet that comes to speak to to Eli. But interweaved through there are these briefly... Uh, these brief descriptions of what's happening with Hannah and Elkanah and Samuel. Now, on one hand, they provide contrast between Hannah and Elkanah's family and Eli's. We see that with Samuel ministering before the Lord. In verse 11, which was the end of last week, and in verse 18, it describes him ministering. So Samuel is serving. He's not a priest, though he has some slightly priestly, uh, an an ephod that is priest-like, Samuel isn't depicted as a priest. He's just a boy serving in the temple, but he is depicted as serving, as ministering. In contrast to Hophni and Phinehas, who are serving themselves. What allows that? Well, verse 21 says this, And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. He grew in the face of the Lord. It describes a relationship. Verse 26 Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. The product, the fruit of Samuel's service and ministering is a relationship and knowledge of God. Or consider Elkanah and Hannah. Year after year they come to make the offerings that they are supposed to. And they are generous with their child Samuel, and they are generous in their service of God because they believe God to be a gracious and generous God. Hannah continues to support Samuel in his ministry. Instead of being resentful that her son is not with her, she continues to come and serve and worship the Lord. And we read in verse 20 this, Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked the Lord so they would return to their home. Year after year, they're continuing to worship. Year after year, Samuel is their only child. And they keep worshiping. 
They don't think God is close-fisted. They don't think God is stingy. They keep worshiping him because they know him to be a gracious and generous God. They recognize that in the gift of Samuel. And we see that God is indeed generous, giving them in his time five more children. Note the contrast. Eli's family seeks to take for the honor of themselves above God. They don't know him as he truly is. While Elkanah and Hannah know God to be kind and gracious and generous, and so they respond to God with generosity and service and ministry. It invites us to ask who we think God to be. Do we believe God to be a stingy God, a withholding God, an angry God? Then we will worship him that way. We will be overly cautious at times in our worship rather than giving ourselves over. We will take and hold on to things for ourselves because we are fearful that God might take it away from us. We will think that we honor him by being angry and judgmental ourselves, by being withholding and stingy from a world desperately in need of salvation. But God is a just God who loves us in giving what is good, what is right and holy. He is generous in his grace to forgive us and send us his son, to give us good gifts that we don't deserve. And when we recognize God as patient, gracious, generous, we will worship him as such. We will give, we will serve, we will minister in generosity. We will value worshiping such a God and worshiping him not to serve ourselves, but in recognizing God as he is, we will know that he is worthy of worship that is holy, worship that is righteous, worship that is reverent. God exposes our hearts in our worship so that our hearts might be instead laid at his feet, the root of our worship being coming before God and seeing him and knowing him as he is and responding aright, which then leads us to service and obedience that we are called to, to the fruitfulness God intends. God is committed to the fruitfulness of his people. God's faithfulness is not just to remove, but it is there in his replacement. Now, if we pay close attention to the prophecy of the prophet in verses 27 through 36, it is a thoroughgoing, wide-ranging, and pretty stark pronouncement of judgment. But it is also fitting judgment. Eli's household has sought to strengthen and fill themselves up with what is God's, and so he announces that their strength will be cut off. Eli has let time pass without addressing the corrupt worship and evil actions of his sons, so there will be no more old men in their line. They have threatened and enacted violence, so they will fall themselves to the sword. They have sought their own prosperity rather than the blessing and goodness of Israel, so that in God's plan to prosper Israel, they will look on with jealousy because they will lack what God gives to the rest of Israel. 
They distorted the gift of provision for the priestly line. God saying, I will provide everything you need through the gifts of the people so that you can serve me. That distortion of that to fatten themselves will lead them one day to hunger so that they will be willing to do any job possible just to get what they need to survive. What the prophet describes here is God burning the stubble off the field. God completely clearing and preparing the land, removing the pernicious weeds that would choke and pollute. But the purpose of that burning, that purpose of that clearing, is the prosperity of his people and their fruitfulness. God's faithfulness is not just to police his people's sins and their faults and their failures. No, he addresses our sins and our failures so that we might repent and turn to his goodness. Verse 32 describes the coming prosperity for Israel. And it is as Israel is approaching the height of that prosperity under the reign of Solomon that Eli's house ceases to be in service. God says, I have a plan to prosper my people. God is preparing his people for something better. God is removing the priesthood of Eli to establish a better priesthood. Verse 35 says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. A priesthood who not only knows God, but cares about what God wants and desires. Throughout this passage, Samuel's ministry has been mentioned, salting and peppering the passage. On one hand, it is a contrast, but it is also an alternative. God is preparing Samuel not to take over the priesthood, but to serve as the prophet spiritually leading God's people in the gap left by Eli and his household. The threading of the Samuel narrative is a demonstration that God is never without recourse, that he is not surprised by sin and evil. He is not defeated by our failures, but God provides what is necessary for our good. Interestingly enough, Eli supplies a bit of a seed of hope for us. Verse 25, as he's addressing his sons, he's trying to get it through their minds of how horrific their sin is, and he says them this to them. He says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. So if you have an issue between yourself and others, God can mediate. He can say what's right so that you can deal with that issue. God could be the bridge to fix what you've broken. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now we can go into a courtroom to have our disputes resolved, but what happens if you have a dispute with the judge? They say, contempt of court, and you're going to jail. You're paying the price. Now, this is a rhetorical question that Eli is raising. He wants them to see the seriousness of their sin, but it also shows us what we need. That we need someone that can intercede with us to God. Because we fall into sin not only against each other, but against the living God. Praise God that we have one that can intercede for us. We confess this morning who that is. Jesus, God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. 
who Paul describes in Romans 8.34, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. God tears down to build. God prunes to produce fruit. God removes sinful prophets, failed priests, rebellious kings to give us the perfect prophet, priest, and king in Jesus. To take away that which cannot bring us to God, that cannot save us, that cannot give us fruitfulness, to give us Jesus who is the only way to life eternal. Paul writes in Romans 5 earlier, in describing suffering, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of discipline, God is preparing us for something better. The removal of Eli's household is going to be painful. It is going to be scary for the people of God. But it is so that God can do something good for them. Brothers and sisters, God will not give up on his church. We are his bride that he has promised to present before himself without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. He will purge our stains He will discipline our sin so that we might be more like him, producing a harvest of righteousness, being full and faithful in him. A few years ago, Rebecca and I came to a point in our relationship where we had to admit that God was not going to produce a certain form of fruitfulness that we wanted, that we were not going to have biological children and that that deal was sealed with surgery that Rebecca underwent. But we also knew that God was faithful. And in marking that time, we, pr- we decided to plant an apple tree. That apple tree does, has not given us any apples yet. So far, we have fertilized it. We have pruned it. I've worked hard not to hit it with the mower or the weed whacker. And I hope eventually, in the next year or two, it will produce fruit. I am not a good gardener. I am definitely not a farmer. But if I want to see fruit from that tree, and I am able to give it time and attention to prune it, to water it, to fertilize it, brothers and sisters, how much more so will God do what is necessary for our fruitfulness? To address our sin, to expose our hearts, so that rather than clinging on to that which we would honor, we would honor him, we would see his son as the provision of God in place of anything else we would put our trust in, so that we might find the fruitfulness of knowing God and being used of him for his glory. God tears down, and he builds back up. God pulls out, and he plants. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your faithfulness to your people.
that you would produce fruitfulness, that you would make what is pleasant, that you would make us rich, that you would feed the hungry, that you would give children to the barren. Gracious God, thank you that in order to do that, you confront us with our sin, you expose our hearts so that our hearts of stone might be replaced with hearts of flesh by the work of your Spirit. Lord, we rejoice in this truth. Help us to walk in it and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.